The portion of Scripture that we want to consider this morning is found in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 9 in your pew Bible. This selection is found on page 12. And we have in Genesis 12 the inspired record of the establishment of the covenant of grace with Abram, uh, who would later become to known as the father of believers. And we read from verses 1 through 9 of this inspired account in Genesis chapter 12. So here now together the reading of the Word of God. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land of the place of Shechem as far as the terebinth tree of Morah. And the Canaanites were then in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel. And he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So Abram journeyed, going on still toward the south. And thus far this morning, our reading from the Word of God. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have had the wonderful opportunity by the providence of God to witness the administration of the sacrament of baptism. And as we reflect upon this wonderful opportunity, uh, I thought in my study this week, if there would be one thing that I could give you as a congregation, what would that be? And now as I presented that question to myself, I did so acknowledging that I cannot give you automatically the gift that I desire to give you. Uh, we are completely dependent upon the Word and the Spirit. But I would desire to give you this gift. And so we pray for this, and we preach for this, and we labor for this, that we as a congregation might understand the wonder of the covenant of grace. That we would understand that God has promised that He would be our God and that we would be His people. Uh, this truth of the covenant of grace is a truth that undergirds the entirety of the revelation found in Holy Scripture. From the opening pages of Genesis until the conclusion or the culmination of Revelation 22, uh, the golden theme that runs all throughout Scripture is God advancing the covenant of grace. Uh, and one of the most pivotal chapters in that advancement of the covenant of grace is in Genesis 12, where God does not begin a new work, but rather establishes His covenant with a certain particular person and through that person to the generations of that person, that person being Abram. And so this morning, 
in the time allotted to us, I want to consider this theme. The Lord establishes His covenant with Abram. We'll notice that the Lord establishes this covenant, first of all, by a divine call, and then secondly, with a human response, and then thirdly, through a gracious fulfillment. The Lord establishes His covenant with Abram, and He does so with a divine call, with a human response, and through a gracious fulfillment. So first of all, consider uh, that the Lord establishes His covenant with Abram and with the seed of Abram, as we'll consider later in this morning's sermon, by way of a divine call. Genesis 12 continues the thematic emphasis that runs all throughout Scripture of the covenant of grace being unilateral in its origin. Unilateral just simply means one-sided. Origin refers to the establishment and also the maintenance of this covenant or relationship, because that's what a covenant is. It is a relationship. It is a close relationship. Finston, you might say, protected by promises that the Lord God Himself takes. And the Lord says to Abram, I will be your God and you will be my people. But He does so based upon this divine act. And so you'll notice that the text begins in verse 1 of chapter 12. Now the Lord had said to Abram, And that's what we mean by this unilateral origin. The Lord is the first one to take action. The Lord takes the initiative. The Lord takes the sovereign uh, responsibility upon Himself with a sovereign command to establish His relationship with Abram. And so the Lord gives a command to Abram, get out of your country from your family, and from your father's house. I know we have to be conscious of the time limits this morning, uh, but Abram's descendants and Abram himself at this point were gripped in the iron vice of idolatry. They were serving gods of their own imagination. They had all of their idols fabricated. They had all of the different things that they were living for But the Lord God in His sovereign grace comes and establishes a division by way of a divine command. The Lord in His unchangeable faithfulness and grace and in mercy comes and separates Abram from out of that context of idolatry and separates Abram unto an exclusive relationship with the Lord God Himself. And this is what is echoed, you might say, in the opening of the Decalogue, in the opening of the Ten Commandments. The Lord God said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the bondage of idolatry, so to speak. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. And that's exactly what the Lord is doing as He speaks to Abram. He's establishing, by way of this covenant of grace, a unique relationship between Himself and between Abram. And that, by way of a point of application, is the reality that a former generation, I believe, understood with the term uh, of an antithesis, that there is this divine enmity placed between the people of God and the people of the world, this divine separation even. Not in our day of some type of geographical separation, but of a spiritual and a moral separation. 
And I've asked uh, you to keep your Bibles open, or I would ask you to keep your Bibles open, uh, and turn to a couple of cross-references this morning. Uh, The first one being, at this time, 2 Corinthians 6, because we want to make application of this principle uh, unto us today and unto our children, that the Lord, when He establishes His covenant of grace, gives this sovereign command that we would be separated unto Himself. And so 2 Corinthians 6 Uh, verses 16, 17, and 18. And there the Apostle Paul writes, And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said. I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So that's the reflection back upon this historical establishment of this covenantal relationship. And then there is the moral obligations. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. People of God, there must be the conscious recognition that we have been called out of the world. That we have been called out of the world by our sovereign Lord God Almighty. That we would not follow after idols, but that we would follow after the one true God of heaven and of earth, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But notice that this sovereign command is connected with a gracious promise. And the Lord is so wonderful how He does this all throughout Scripture. Uh, When the Lord gives a command, He so often gives also a promise. Uh, And the promise then is the motivation uh, behind uh, the keeping of the command. And so if we go back to Genesis chapter 12, uh, there is the command, get out of your country, away from idolatry. And then verse 2, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Notice again that this blessing comes from the Lord, and all blessings ultimately come from the Lord. The Lord is the only source of true and lasting blessing. And the Lord in His grace and in His mercy says to Abram, I will bless you. What reason was there for the Lord to bless Abram? Abram was nothing special in and of himself. He was nothing unique in and of himself. This is why we call the covenant of grace just that, the covenant of grace, not the covenant uh, of earnings, not the covenant of merit, not the covenant of social status, not the covenant of genealogy, not the covenant of even certain spiritual criteria, the covenant of grace. The Lord God said, I will bless you. I want to encourage you this morning to reflect upon that truth that is also signified and sealed unto us in the sacrament of baptism. You see, far too often we are far too concerned with what we are going to do rather than what the Lord has promised he would do. The Lord says to Abram, I will bless you. 
And how? Especially in three aspects. The Lord says to Abram, I will bless you with a multitude of descendants. And I will bless you with a dwelling place. And I will bless you by using you to be a blessing to the nations. And all of this is bound up in the covenant promises of God that continue from generation to generation. And so with this divine call, a sovereign command, and a gracious promise, uh, this promise does not just simply extinguish itself with Abram, but it continues all throughout the Old Testament and all throughout the New Testament, indeed all throughout human history. And so in Acts 2 verse 39, uh, when Peter preaches his Pentecostal sermon, he picks this same theme up and he says, for the promises to you and to your children and your descendants after you, as God continues to remember his covenant from generation to generation, to gather together a multitude an innumerable multitude of those who would worship Him in spirit and in truth, both now and for all of eternity, uh, in a land ultimately in the new heaven and the new earth, uh, with an influence that would spread to all of the nations so that people of all ethnicities would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. So this is the divine call. But notice that this is met then with a human response that we consider in our second point. And I want to try to be very emphatically clear that the human response is produced by the graciousness of the Lord God. Abram only responds in obedience because of what the Lord God works within Abram's heart. But Abram does respond. Abram does respond with an act of faithful obedience and the act of faithful worship. Now, later in the passage, if you skim ahead, you'll notice that Abram falls into disobedience. But for our purposes this morning, while we recognize that fact, we just focus on his faithful obedience to the command as he departs the land. And we so often read this account in verse 1 there, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. And then verse 4, so Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him. Uh, But imagine what this must have been like for Abram to leave everything he had known and to go to an as of yet undisclosed land. But Abram obeyed. He obeyed the command of the Lord. He did so by faith. Hebrews 11 verse 8 tells us, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of the place which he would receive as an inheritance. You see, by faith, Abram, and later, boys and girls, you understand his name was changed by God to Abraham. By faith, Abram followed after the Lord God, leaving the idolatry of his former life. By faith, he served God exclusively. By faith, he obeyed the call of the covenant. In all covenants, there are two parts. There is the promise, and there is the obligation. The promise is, God says, I will be your God, and you will be my people. The obligation is to repent and believe. And Abram 
repented of his idolatry. Not perfectly, but he repented of his idolatry. And he believed the promises of the Lord. And he walked by faith. Now, various theologians in the Reformed churches have made distinctions with different terminologies, whether it's internal covenant, external covenant, uh, the effectual realization of the covenant, the historical administration of the covenant. All of these various phrases seek to reckon with the reality of the existence of both a Cain and an Abel. Or you might think also of an Ishmael and an Isaac, or an Esau and a Jacob. And the Apostle Paul says that not all who are in the midst of Israel are truly of Israel. And so I would present this question to you this morning, especially to anyone who hears these words, who has received baptism upon their forehead. How are you responding? How are you responding to the call of God to walk in the exclusivity of faith? Because one of the most painful things is to see an individual who is baptized live a life of idolatry having nothing any longer to do with the God of their youth, having nothing any longer to do with the promises, to walk in defiance. So I simply ask you this morning, as I ask myself, how are we responding to this call of God upon our lives? God says, in essence, to you and to me, leave idolatry and serve me. I will bless you. Are we exercising faith? Could it be said, by faith, put in your own name, by faith, you obeyed when called to go out of the place? Notice also that it's not just faithful obedience, but faithful obedience expresses itself with faithful worship. Faith worships. What does Abraham do? He gets up out of his father's house in the sense of leaving the idolatry of his father. And he goes as he walks towards the Lord in the obedience of faith, and he builds an altar. Actually, the text records two altars that are built, and it gives this indication even in verse 9. So Abram journeyed. Well, well, how did Abram journey? Well, verse 8 says, He moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Verse 7 repeats the same thing, basically. There he built an altar to the Lord. And this altar was the expression of worship of acknowledging that God is worthy to be served and honored and glorified with all aspects of Abram's life. But this is the way, verse 9, that he made his journey. Faith journeys in worship. And I don't think that Abram was just kind of doing this in an isolated fashion. Uh, This is in the very beginning form of the church. 
And so this ought not to be read as some type of excuse to abandon the assembling of ourselves together, because what Abram was doing as he would gather together with his extended family who had received the sign and the seal of the covenant eventually was he was leading the people of God in corporate worship. Because this is one of the obligations also that comes forth from the covenant that we would worship our God. And, and, and so often, I, I think of what Jesus Christ says in John 4, that the Father is seeking something. And, and behind this whole establishment of the covenant of grace, the Father is seeking something. Why does the Father, God the Father Almighty, why does God call Abram out of idolatry? Why does God say to Abram, I will give you many, many, many descendants? Why does God say, I, I will give you a place in which to dwell? Why does the Lord God say, and through you, Abram, I will bless the nations of the earth. It all might be boiled down to this, that the Father seeks worshipers. The Father seeks those who would worship Him in spirit and in truth. And because that is the ultimate end or goal or aim of God's redemptive purposes, God then from all of eternity has determined to choose a certain people to bring them into a, a relationship unto Himself, a unique relationship, a covenantal relationship, and to bless them with children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. That as the Spirit then gathers the church together, there might be a multi-generational, innumerable multitude of those who have been called out of idolatry into the exclusive service and worship of the Lord our God. And this congregation is why Hebrews 10 emphasizes, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Bound up within our understanding of the covenant of grace must also be an appreciation for the exercise of corporate worship. Abram responded to the covenant of grace and faith that was seen in his obedience and in his worship. But all of this is bound up with our third point. The Lord establishes his covenant with Abraham through a gracious fulfillment. Because the covenant promise is to the seed of Abraham and through the seed of Abraham. And I'm not trying to be funny with the prepositional phrases there. They're chosen purposeful. The promises to the seed of Abraham. You can think of Galatians 3 uh, verse 29, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The promise given in Genesis 12 was not just to Abram but it was to all of the spiritual descendants of Abram. To all of those who would call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. To all of those who would be united to the Lord Jesus Christ through the living exercise of faith. The promise is to them. And, and this congregation is laid out in our form for the administration of baptism. This is why we also place this sign and seal of baptism upon the foreheads of our infant children, because the promise is to them and to our grandchildren and to our great-grandchildren, to thousands of generations. It's not just to me, but to my descendants after me. 
And 1 Corinthians 7 verse 14 makes this clear. That for the sake of the believing spouse and the household, the children are holy. The children are set apart. The children are consecrated. This is why we administer the waters of baptism uh, to the generations of those born in the realm of the administration of the covenant of grace. But we want to quickly hasten on and stress that the gracious fulfillment is through the seed of Abraham. And here the lens narrows Galatians 3, verse 16, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, plural, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. The promise of the covenant of grace is bound up in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the promise applies to the descendants of believers only because it applies to Christ. Christ has fulfilled all that is necessary for the maintenance and the establishment of the covenant of grace. The promises are yea and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I just simply, and, and so much could and should in another context be said about this, but I just simply want to close with, with this point of application. I began the introduction by saying if there was one thing that I could give this congregation, it would be a biblical, healthy, mature understanding and appreciation of the covenant of grace. But do you know what the key to understanding the covenant of grace is? Understanding the centrality of Christ to the covenant of grace. Because there is so much that is written and said, debated, argued within the churches about the covenant of grace that completely forgets to emphasize the person and work of Jesus Christ. Page after page, volume after volume, debate after debate on the nature of the covenant of grace forgetting the mediator of the covenant of grace, Jesus Christ. And the sign of a healthy understanding of the covenant of grace will be an emphasis upon the work of Jesus Christ and sincere faith and repentance towards Jesus Christ. And to that we are called also this morning. We have heard something of the promises of the covenant of grace. We have seen something in the waters of baptism of the covenant of grace. Now then, hear this closing exhortation. Let us believe. Let us believe in the mediator of the covenant of grace, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, what a wonder is revealed to us in the pages of Scripture, especially this morning in Genesis chapter 12. What a wonder of your sovereign grace that you would call us out of the darkness of our idolatry into the marvelous light of your Son, Jesus Christ. 
Uh, Father, we have only begun to scratch the surface of the depths that there is in regards to these matters, but we pray that you would add your blessing that is so necessary, that we might understand and appreciate who you are as our faithful Lord, as our Almighty God, and that we would walk before you and, in a measure, be blameless, obeying and also worshiping you, showing forth our gratitude for who you are and what you have done. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.